Amen. A lot of updates, a lot of things happening, and uh, we just love what God is doing through this community. And just to reiterate what Pastor Sal said, it, it happens because of your continued generosity. We believe in the biblical principle here at GT that you cannot outgive God. Amen. You cannot outgive God. And when we are generous with what he has entrusted to us, we believe that he pours out his spirit of generosity on us as well. And that is a biblical truth. Some exciting days ahead, some exciting things happening. I uh, really want to just uh, encourage you once again that um, Alpha is such an important aspect uh, to GT in our community because uh, we believe in the great commission that Jesus gave to go and make disciples of all nations. And uh, the language that Jesus uses there in that Great Commission is go and make disciples who essentially make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That we are not called to make converts, we are called to make disciples. That we are committed to a life-on-life component of investing into the heart of people so that they might be shaped and formed by the Spirit of Christ and really understand what it means to truly follow Him in the 21st century, in this day and age that we live. And it takes uh, commitment, it takes time, it's messy, um, it's not always just great reward and you see great things happening, but I believe it is so worth it when we commit to disciple people and invest into their lives and just trust the leading of the Holy Spirit to do something powerful in them. I, I had a friend who used to always say Jesus was discipling his would-be disciples long before they ever became disciples. Say that three times really fast, right? Jesus was discipling his would-be disciples long before they ever became disciples. And so I think that's the call of the church is that we would commit to discipleship and we trust the Holy Spirit to regenerate their hearts, to do a work in their lives, and to bring them into that healing transformation. And uh, it's going to be good to be starting and launching Alpha once again. Well, if you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 11 here this morning. If you're new here, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at GT. We are privileged and honored that you would gather with us, that you would worship with us, and uh, we just are anticipating great, great days ahead. This morning, we are in week two of a series called Journey to the Cross, where we are looking at essentially the last, the last week of Jesus's life leading up to his crucifixion, leading up to his death, burial, and ultimately his resurrection. And we're really trying to hone in on some essential things that Jesus taught, on some essential things that Jesus modeled and demonstrated to those that were close to him. He knows he's getting ready to die. He knows that he will resurrect. He knows that he will eventually ascend into heaven. And so in this last little bit of time that he has with these people, he has some things that he wants to convey to them so that they understand the mantle or the calling that they now carry in his absence. If you've been here for any length of time over the last year, you've heard me say this statement many times over. I love to say it often, it's simply this, Jesus is perfect theology. That wherever we have confusion or misunderstanding about God, we look to Jesus. That Jesus is the full manifestation of who God is. The writer of Hebrews said that he is the radiance of God's glory. So wherever we have misunderstanding or wherever we have questions or wherever we have confusion about God, who are you and what are you like, we ultimately always must look to Jesus because Jesus is perfect 
theology. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said this, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as the central character. Now this morning we celebrate today what's called Palm Sunday, where we're looking at the, what's called the triumphal entry of Jesus. And in the Bible we believe that there are two independent accounts of this narrative of the story. It's interesting to note that most historians believe that if there are more than one independent account of a testimony, of a narrative, of a story, then that only solidifies the validity and the truth of that story. And so this morning I want us to stand our feet as we read the word of God here as we do every single week. I'm going to read in Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 11 where the author writes this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus has said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. This is the word of the Lord. We may be seated this morning. Now real quickly, just a little bit of historical context for this story that we read from here today. Number one, it's believed to be early spring. Now I believe early spring in their context looks a lot better than early spring in Canadian context. It's April, by the way, April 10th, right? And this morning, we were waking up to some white drizzly stuff. Um, we need to enter into a time, a season of prayer and fasting and rebuke that white drizzly stuff in the name of Jesus because my birthday is in a few days and I don't want white drizzly stuff. But in this context, it's early spring. It's right around the time of the Jewish feast called Passover or of Nisan. And Jesus and his disciples, they are making their way from Jericho where blind Bartimaeus has just been healed and they are coming over the Mount of Olives by way of what's called the Roman Road. And they are making their way down to Jerusalem. Now most of the time in theology, whenever it speaks of going to Jerusalem, it speaks of going up to Jerusalem. It's the idea of the holy city. But that's more theological in the way that the writers described it. But in this context, they're coming off the mountain and they are going down to Jerusalem. Now both John's gospel and Mark's gospel, they differ slightly in this event, but they are both unified in declaring that the people were welcoming Jesus into the city of Jerusalem with celebration, and ultimately they were anticipating 
his arrival. And it says here in Mark's gospel that they welcomed him by shouting, Hosanna. And this word Hosanna simply means this, save us, we pray. Now we understand that when we say that on this side of the cross, we are speaking of a spiritual salvation. We are speaking of God's redemptive purposes for us. But on this side of the cross in Mark chapter 11 here, when they say, save us, we pray, they're essentially saying, save us from those blasted Romans. Save us from those blasted rulers that oppress us in this day. Uh, they, They welcome him by shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is connected to Psalm 118, verse 26. It referred to pilgrims entering the sanctuary or the temple, and it can also be messianic. They say, blessed is the coming of our father, or the kingdom of our father David. And this speaks of an eternal kingdom in which all other kingdoms would fall. It was very eschatological in nature, meaning it was speaking to the consummation of all things. It was speaking to the finality of all things. It was speaking to the great hope that the first century Jews were to have to say, God is coming and he will perform something in our midst in which he will bring completion to his purposes and plans. And then they were waving palm branches as a sign of victory and shouting. Uh, The waving of palm branches is actually connected to an event that happened about 150 years prior to this under a great revolutionary by the name of Judas Maccabeus who led a revolt and overthrew the powers of the day and reconsecrated the temple and they actually began to wave palm branches as a sign of victory. In fact, he had on the, on the coins of the Jewish people, the, the palm branches were actually imprinted on many of those coins to remind them of the great victory. Now William Barclay, in commenting on this passage of scripture, he says this, There is no doubt that when the people sang this psalm, they were looking on Jesus as God's anointed one, the Messiah, the deliverer, the one who was to come. And there is no doubt that they were looking on him as the conqueror. To them, it must have been only a matter of time until the trumpets rang out and the call to arms sounded and the Jewish nation swept to its long-delayed victory over Rome and the world. And Jesus approached Jerusalem with the shout of the mob, hailing a conqueror in his ears. And it must have hurt him, for they were looking in him for that very thing which he refused to be. They understood that this Jesus was coming and he's been performing many great miracles. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. He's healed blind Bartimaeus and he's gathering the crowds and the multitudes are starting to follow him. And they understood many of the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament scriptures about one who is to come, the anointed one, the Christ, in which God would act on their behalf to overthrow their enemies. And he's approaching the city and he's coming close and they have all this anticipation. The the problem is they're looking for him to be something ultimately that he never intended to be. You see, I believe as they heard his approaching of, of the city, the excitement began to arise amongst the people. And they looked up towards the Mount of Olives and anticipation began to increase. This was their moment. This was their time. Messiah has come and he was going to make all that was wrong and unjust right. 
And of course he would choose Passover to launch this revolution. Of course he would start off by entering the temple just as Judas Maccabeus had done so many years before because the temple was a place where God was supposed to be present. And as Jesus approached the city, the shouts of praise and welcoming began to increase. The overthrow of Rome was inevitable for many. But something was unique about Jesus' arrival. Something was different. What was this beast that he was riding? I can imagine the people saying, what is that animal that our Messiah sits upon? There's all this excitement, there's all this anticipation, but what is that animal? A donkey? A colt? Seriously? That's what our Messiah is riding? That's what the anointed one is riding? Now I believe that maybe there were some present that day that would remember the words of Zechariah chapter nine and the messianic promise that we see there in Zechariah nine where it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Maybe there were some present that day that would have connected it to those words, but the truth is, most of the people within first century Judaism were anticipating a Messiah to come differently than the way he actually came. And so they loved to connect Messiah to more victorious passages that spoke of authority and spoke of power and spoke of might. So they often dismissed these types of passages here in Zechariah chapter 9. You see, how a king or how a leader approached a city uh, spoke a powerful message about the intention of that leader. If a king or leader approached the city on a stallion, it spoke of power, it spoke of authority, and usually it was connected to a call to war. But if a king or leader approached the city on a, on a donkey, on a colt, it spoke of great humility and it spoke of a call to peace. Now we understand now that on this side of the cross, there have been discoveries of many different letters from antiquity that actually give us some understanding about the events that would transpire often in that first century. We read here in Mark chapter 11 about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but we also know there was another triumphal entry that happened over and over again in the Jewish festivals. You see, it was believed, it's written about actually, that Pontius Pilate would often ride into Jerusalem on a war horse, on a stallion, and he would often do this during Passover, during the Jewish festivals. He would ride in, and it was simply a, a call to remind them that it's good that you celebrate your festival, but never forget who's in charge. Never forget the authority that you are under. Never, never forget it's our grace that we allow you to celebrate in these festivals. And so it's believed that there were, there were two entries into Jerusalem on that day. On one end of the city, you have Pontius Pilate representing Rome that's coming in on a tall beast, a tall stallion, and it's signifying I'm over you, I'm lording over you, I have power, Rome has authority. Never forget that truth. And then on the other side of this city, there's Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, the great Messiah. 
And they're hoping he's coming on a magnificent beast, on a magnificent stallion, ready to call the people to arms. And yet we read about here, he doesn't do that. He comes how? On a donkey, on a colt. He comes in the form of humility. You see, one comes in the name and form of power. The other comes in the name and form of peace. One comes riding high above and over the people, but the other comes lowly and humble and really from the place of being within the people. There's two entries that are happening. One's trying to demonstrate power and authority through military advancement, through all the greatest weaponry, usually accompanied by chariots in this excursion. And the other one comes on this little, little donkey with a ragtag group of people following him that were the lowest of the lowest of society called his disciples. And so we have two entries happening here. Now we also know from the Old Testament scriptures that donkeys and colts were also used for the purpose of carrying heavy loads and ultimately for the purpose of relieving human burden. And so as we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus here on Palm Sunday, I believe essentially there is a, a two-fold prophetic purpose of Jesus choosing to ride a donkey on his way to Jerusalem. Number one, we see this. We see that Jesus was coming to establish a kingdom of peace and not a kingdom of war. They were used to revolution. They were used to war. But Jesus was coming as Messiah, not to call them to take up arms and fight for their rights and their liberties. He was, calling to bring, he was call, coming to call them to a different way of living, a different type of kingdom, a kingdom that could know no end, a kingdom that could only increase because it's not a kingdom based off of human ability and power. It's a kingdom that is spiritual and within, and you may kill the body, but you can never kill my soul. You can never kill my spirit. It's an eternal kingdom. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about this about 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. He said, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now many times when I start talking about this idea of peace, I want you to understand I'm not talking about the posture of pacifism. I think as Christians, we must do our best to live at peace with all people. But I'm not a pacifist because I believe there are times where you need to fight in order to establish or build peace or to protect peace. I think we're seeing that in our world today with the events that are happening, especially in the Ukraine right now. So there is a time for us to defend or guard or protect. We understand that. But understand this, we must always know who our true enemy is. Because we don't fight against flesh and blood. We're fighting a different fight, especially in the realm of the kingdom. It's a spiritual battle. And even at times where we have to take up arms to protect or guard, right, what is peaceful. Understand that those people are also a part of the Imago Dei. They have the image of God in them. And they may be deceived, they may be led astray, they may be being led by a horrific person. But our ultimate fight 
is never against flesh and blood. And so Jesus comes to remind them, like, listen, your real enemy is not the Romans. Yes, they oppress you. Yes, they do horrible things to you. But it's really the spirit behind that leadership. That's the real struggle. That's the real battle that we in. And so Jesus was coming to establish a kingdom of peace and not war. Secondly, I believe the prophetic fulfillment of this passage is that he was coming to carry the burdens of his people. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, it says, come to me, Jesus' words here, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I want to share this analogy here. Emmanuel, I'm going to have you come up here. I didn't ask you about this, but I love putting people on the spot. And your nephew's name again is? Asher. Yeah, Asher, why don't you come up here, all right? Emmanuel and Asher, let's give it up for our two great examples here today. So Emmanuel, for this analogy, you're going to be an old, savvy, wise oxen, all right, for this analogy, okay? Asher, you're going to be the young oxen, all right, because this is the type of language that Jesus used. He says, listen, I've come into the world to carry your burdens, and I want you to take my yoke upon you. Now, in ancient cultures, in agricultural cultures, what they would do is they would take two oxen. Thank you for being willing to be oxen today. I wanted a young person. In a, you're not that old, man. You're, you're just going to be old for this, all right? And this, these are my brothers, so I can, I can pick on them in this moment, right? So, and they won't be offended by me in this. So um, what they would do is they would take two oxen, two cattle to plow a field. And they would take a wiser oxen, and they would put it with a younger, youthful oxen. And they would link them together. So I just want you guys to link arm and arm like you guys are linking together. And they would chain them together for the purpose of the pace and the cadence and the rhythm of the wiser, older, more mature person. But then the youthful energy of the younger person. And they would yoke them together for the purpose of discovering the healthy rhythm that they should walk and journey in. So when they're plowing a field, the way it would go is that the younger oxen would get really excited and have all the energy and want to run out ahead, right? And the older, the older, more wise, savvy oxen would say, slow down, young one, slow down. We've got a whole day ahead of us, right? We've got a whole day ahead of us. We need to go at a healthy pace here, right? We need to go at a healthy rhythm here. And so the younger one would want to get way ahead, and then the, the yoke would pull them back into the rhythm, the cadence, and once again, there'd be that mentoring, there'd be that coaching that would happen, and they would discover a healthy rhythm. But at times, the younger one would also have the energy to kind of, hey, let's speed up, old timer. Let's speed up, old timer. I know you're old in age. I know you're, you're getting a little uh, debilitated in your health and stuff, but we, we want to finish the job at work today. But they would discover eventually this beautiful rhythm, and they would begin to journey side by side in this beautiful rhythm and cadence. <laughs> With hurt knees and everything, right? So, awesome, awesome. Thank you guys so much. So, love you. Appreciate you guys. Thanks, Asher. So, this was the language that Jesus used here. He says, take my yoke upon you. For, for my burden is like what Jesus is saying in this moment. He's saying, 
He's saying, I want you to understand what I have come to do is I have come so that you may connect yourself, so you may link yourself to me and discover the rhythm and the cadence that I have for your life, and ultimately by connecting to me, I will be the one that carries your burdens. I'll be the one that carries your troubles. I'll be the one that carries your heartache and your difficulty and the challenges that you're going through. So when Jesus, he chooses this donkey, it's a posture of humility, it's a posture of peace and not war, but it's also yoke yourself to me. I am here to carry your burdens, and I want you to understand your real burden has nothing to do with the Roman Empire. Doesn't mean that it's, not, that it's easy, it's, it's difficult that you live under their rule and their oppression, but your real burden is, is not them. Your real burden is actually spiritual, and ultimately it's within. And so what Jesus is saying is that when you yoke yourself to me, when you connect to me, he wants to show us what it means to be a non-anxious presence and to discover what his cadence and rhythm actually looks like. I think that message is prevalent for us today here in the 21st century. As we celebrate Palm Sunday, there is an invitation being extended to us as the people of God where we are trying to carry all the burdens on our own. We're trying to will ourselves into victory. We're trying to will ourselves into accomplishing certain things. And Jesus is inviting us to simply give our burdens, give our cares, give our worries to him, to abide with him, to connect with him, to link with him, and learn his rhythm, learn his cadence. That's why he has, in fact, come. Amen? And we, we, must, we must see that. So he's come to bring peace, not war, but he's also come to help carry the burdens and ultimately teach us the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom, which is a non-anxious presence. As we read on in Mark chapter 11, he comes into the city. They're waving the palm branches. There's all this anticipation about what he's going to do next. And he goes and he enters into the temple. And this would have made sense according to their Jewish history of what happened when people would approach the city at the time of Passover. There would be celebration. We welcome you. Now go and make your sacrifices to the temple. Go and dedicate yourself in the temple. Go and do the practices in the temple. But we read about in verses 15 through 19, it says, And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Remember the promise in Abraham, Genesis 12. Abraham, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna elect you, I'm gonna call you out to build a family, to build a nation, but not so that you would just have a great nation, so that this nation would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Jesus, he, he reiterates that here, a blessing and a prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now, I, I love this story because whenever people try to present an image of Jesus that was void of it, any anger at any time, I always like to say, have you read the latter half of Mark chapter 11? 
or Jesus, quite frankly, goes ham, if I could say it that way. He goes beast mode on the manipulation and the abuse that is happening in the temple. You see, the people who welcomed him into the city, they expected him to act with their oppressors, but rather he acted how they expected him to act with their oppressors with them. The way they expected him to act with their oppressors is the way he acted with them. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. There's excitement, there's anticipation. His PR is growing. The testimonies are growing. People think he is the one. He is the anointed one. He has finally come, and he's going to lead a revolt in which we enter into Rome, and we overthrow the Romans, and we fight for our religious liberties. Jesus then comes into Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and he starts flipping over tables. He starts confronting the abuse of power inside their temple. The place that was supposed to represent where they met with God. The way they thought he would act with Rome is actually the way he acted with them. And I believe Jesus is actually showing here this truth. That repentance always starts with the house of God. Or the people of Jesus' day is go deal with all that is corrupt out there. Jesus comes and says, I want to deal with what's corrupt in here. I want to expose the manipulation, the abuse, the corruption that is happening in my father's house. And if we can be honest, in many ways, over the last few years, in the sense of frustration that we've all felt, I've felt, <laughs> I've wrestled with. I've had many times my, my lenses of, oh, all those bad people out there, oh, all those evil leaders out there, oh, all the corruption happening out there, and I'm not saying that it does not exist out there, but I'm continually reminded that repentance starts in the house of God. And while I'm pointing fingers of all that is wrong out there, we find ourselves in a, in a moment where through the work of the Holy Spirit, he's coming and he's exposing the corruption, the injustice, and the evil that is actually within the people of God themselves. You see, last week, we learned that the kingdom of Jesus was an upside-down kingdom. In the kingdom of Jesus, things happen that don't make any sense. Right? We learned about his, his servitude, his humble heart, that he would love those that don't deserve his love, that he would wash the feet of even those that would betray him. It's an upside-down kingdom. He, he comes as the Son of God, the Anointed One, but he says, I don't come to lord my authority over anyone. I come to serve the least of these. This week, I believe we learn about this truth, that his kingdom is an inside-out kingdom. He talked about it often with the Pharisees. He said, you, you care about external realms and external measures, about what things look like on the outside, but I'm telling you, my Father, he cares about your heart. This is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You've heard it said, but I tell you, 
He's speaking as one with authority. You, you think if you just check off the boxes of do not sin, do not sin, do not sin, you're good enough. I'm telling you, my Father desires all of you, and he wants to get after your heart, the very inwardness of your condition. So here in the triumphal answer, we must see it for what it really is. He comes to Jerusalem, and he's not coming to rally the troops to go to expose and conquer all that is out there. No, he comes and he says, there's corruption, and there's evil, and there's manipulation that is happening in my Father's house, and I will confront it, and I will deal with it. Because repentance starts in the house of God. It's the inside-out realm of the kingdom. And so, even in the last few weeks, there's been a lot happening in the world of Christianity. A lot happening. Are you aware of this? A lot happening. Painful stuff happening. Difficult things happening. Exposure happening. But as I say all the time, exposure is God's grace if we allow it to be. And it can be easy for us to get swept up in all that is happening out there. But we need to learn to posture ourselves when these things happen. We don't go, oh, how could they? We always look inward and say, Jesus, come into my temple. Come into my temple. If there's any corruption in me, deal with it. If there's any brokenness in me, heal it. If there's any abuse use in me. Deal with it. Confront it in my life. Holy Spirit, come. Search me. And if there is any way that is unclean, come and flip over the tables in my life. As I say so often when I preach, I want the Word of God to confront us and then comfort us. I think in the last couple decades, we've had a lot of comforting, but we haven't had enough confronting. And every time we read the Scriptures, As I say so often, we should identify with the Pharisees. We should identify with the self-righteous. We should identify with those that we think get it so wrong. We should identify with the ones that are expecting Jesus to come in a way that he says, I'm not coming that way. I'm coming in a different way. And we should in this moment say on this Palm Sunday, Holy Spirit, come and enter my temple. And if there is anything in my life that needs to be overturned, overturn it. It may not be to the extreme of other issues and other things, but we all have our stuff, don't we? We all easily carry a self-righteous, pious attitude at times. What about them? There's been a lot of what about them over the last two years. It's interesting that in the project of post-enlightenment, how tribalized we have become in the last two years. Technology and the web and Our enlightenment and education was supposed to do away with tribalism. It was supposed to unify us. And what what has happened? What has happened? We've become more divided. We've become more tribalized. Why? Because we're not allowing him to come into our temple and turn over our tables. We want to sit there and point at everything else that is going on. Is this making any sense here this morning? And so... We, we celebrate Palm Sunday as this great victorious thing. And on this side of eternity, we know that victory does come. But in their context, it wasn't about victory of salvation in the realm of spiritualism and redemption. It was get them for what they deserve. Get those blasted Romans. And Jesus says, you don't understand the way of the gospel. Because the gospel is I'm about to get what I don't deserve so that you can get what you don't deserve. He goes and he flips the tables and he upsets, he, he, he uproots the whole system that they thought honored God. And Jesus comes and says, none of this honors my Father. 
but I will have a holy church. I will purge my church, and I will resurrect the people that will really know me, and when they really know me, they will know God, my Father. I want us to stand to our feet here this morning. Just for a moment here, what I want to do is I want us to have a time of reflection in our own hearts. Hosanna! This should be celebratory. We get the celebration, Resurrection Sunday. But many times we want to get to Resurrection Sunday and not deal with the journey to the cross. We never want to deal with all that Jesus was doing and accomplishing to lead up to resurrection power. You cannot experience resurrection power unless you're willing to experience continual death. Death to the flesh, death to our desires, death to our selfishness, death, death to, to our even personal ambitions at times, death to self-righteousness. So I want us right now just to have a moment of reflection. And I want you to pray this simple prayer. Pray it after me. Holy Spirit, search me. What tables in my life need to be overturned? I welcome you to come into this temple and overturn my tables of self-righteousness, of pride, of arrogance, of expecting your kingdom to come in a way that you do not desire to come. Help me to be open to your will. Help me to be open to your ways and to understand you are building a different kingdom, an eternal kingdom that comes in humility and not power. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to sing this song in closure here today. I speak Jesus.